wonderful time of worship and what a great song to lead up to our kickoff uh, of this time in the Word and sort of a conclusion for Bible school. I'm really delighting in this week. I love Bible school. I'm still kind of a kid at heart and Wendy gives me this great privilege of directing the older children's mission study. And she kind of gives me free reign, which for Wendy giving that to me, it's a pretty big risk. Because uh, she knows I've got like time issues and things like that. And so she does give me a schedule and, and we really worked hard to see what we could do with that this week. And it went well. And it was just great. And so I loved every minute of Bible school. If you worked in Bible school this week, stand up real quick. I want you to look at this great staff. Give them a hand. They are awesome. Awesome. Sweet, sweet week together. A couple of things going on I want to catch you up on. We are putting together a group of folks. We're just kind of calling it the Fix-It Crew. And uh, what we're doing is improving the quality of our campus by uh, fixing things, maintaining things, and beautifying things. And I need your help. Some of you, you've gotten the email and you've responded. Others of you, you're just not big emailers and you need more of a direct personal invitation. And so I want to tell you, we need you. Tear off that tear off on the bulletin and just write, hey, fix it, crew, I'm in. I can help beautify I can help maintain or I can help repair. Tell which one of those you want to do. Go ahead and do that now. Don't wait till later. If you're thinking about it, jump in, tear off that. When you're going out today, drop that in the hands of one of the staff members. Uh, give it to me. Melvin will be around. He likes to take things up. Uh, help us out and just drop those things off. We really appreciate it. Also, in a couple of weeks, we'll be nominating a committee to begin the process of a search for a person to fill the slot, the ministry position of associate pastor of administration and discipleship and education. And so that's coming around the corner and we'll be nominating. It'll happen on a Sunday morning. You'll get a little form and you'll be able to nominate on that form in a couple of weeks. So we're just letting you know in advance that that's coming. Looking forward to what God is doing in the midst of all that. So we're really fired up about this. I started a couple of weeks ago talking to you about loving Jesus. Uh, and so I, that's where I'm going today. Let me just interject in there. You've been really sweet to me and my family this week. You probably got that email that we sent out this week telling you that the results of my biopsy came back, that I have prostate cancer, that uh, it's definite that the treatment is pretty well settled as surgery that will occur on August the 1st. I'll have to be out for a little while after that. Got a great staff. You'll be in good hands. Need your prayers leading up to that. We have to wait a period of eight weeks from the biopsy to the time of the surgery to make sure everything's healed and uh, then proceed with the surgery. That's probably more information than you need, but I'm just... I want to be transparent with you. I just want to tell you what's going on. You are free to talk to us about it. Don't feel weird or sheepish. Just let's talk about it. It's cancer. It's ugly. Uh, and uh, God is good. 
And we're going to walk right through this together as a family. And I thank you for the sweet prayers, cards, emails, texts, drop-bys, all the things you've been doing. You're just wonderful. And I'm truly thankful. Thanks for encouraging my family also as they walk through this. Um, let me mention to you, uh, during the time leading up to that and, and during that time, I really want you to pray specifically that my heart will just be settled and relaxed and at peace with Jesus. There is nothing as joyful and settling as loving Jesus and knowing that he first loved us. And so that's where we're resting and that's where we're rejoicing. So I'm really thankful. So let's jump into what we've been talking about. Peter, back there in John 21, he had failed miserably uh, just a few weeks before that. He had denied Jesus three times. And in that denial, just set a course of just a, a bitterly weeping time of regret, going back to fishing. Jesus shows up in his third revelation to his disciples of his resurrected self, and he meets them on the beach. And you know the interaction we covered two weeks ago and last week was the interaction of Jesus talking to Peter and saying to him, Do you love me? Peter responding, Lord, you know, I love you. And again, he does it. And again, and Peter in that third time says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And each of those times he responded in love, the Lord gave him a task. He said, this is what you're to do with that love. Obey me. And so that's what we were talking about is what kind of thing will sustain us when life is disappointing, when situations are difficult, when we fail, when others fail, when people disappoint us or the church disappoints us or our situations disappoint us or we disappoint ourselves by really messing things up. What's going to get us through? And the thing that we landed on and that Jesus dealt with was this one thing. It's loving Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's the key, the core, the thing. And so that's where Jesus wants us, is loving Him. And then last week we talked about how loving Jesus has this consequence to it. And so I'm going to walk through that real quick just to freshen up your minds to what we said. I said that there were two consequences. First was suffering. When Jesus spoke to Peter after Peter's confession of loving him, he said, Peter, you used to go wherever you wanted to go, and you used to conduct yourself the way you wanted to conduct yourself, but as you love me and live out these commands... Something's going to happen. You're going to suffer. People are going to grab you, clothe you, and take you where you do not wish to go. In other words, there's going to be a consequence of suffering for this. And then John fills in right after that in John 21 where he says, Jesus was speaking to Peter about the kind of death by which he would, and that's the second, glorify God. So there's these two consequences in loving Jesus. There's suffering in this present world. And then there is the hope of, the presence of, and the promise of glory in the coming world. And so I walked through that with you and kind of drew a picture, and here's how it went. And you can pick up the message from last week to walk through it. Go ahead, Lynn. Uh, I need to mention this. Thank you for bringing that up, Lynn. Um, write this website down real quick. Just take a minute, write it down, I'll tell you why. I'm going to just stop for a second so I don't distract you. I'll call it out. 
www.verber.com front slash mark front slash x-i-a-n front slash wait with a dash of with a dash glory dot pdf. This is C.S. Lewis's best sermon ever. And it goes along with what I've been sharing with you. We read some of it on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. It's a hard read because C.S. Lewis was speaking at a time that uh, words were a little stronger and uh, more, um, a little more complicated. So you may have to get a little dictionary with it. I've had to. Uh, I'm not saying that you're bad if you had to get the dictionary out. I've had to do that uh, to define a few of those words. But it's a great Great read. C.S. Lewis's best sermon. In fact, the anniversary of that sermon was just this past week. Uh, and he just lays it out there, what we're talking about, in a very beautiful way. So, thank you, Lynn. Go ahead. So, I told you about a little factory that's producing something. Your life is a factory. And if you're a believer, it's producing something. And I shared with you that factories have one side where things are coming in. They have another side where product is going out. You got a Nissan factory, you got parts going in, you got Nissans going out. And so that factory is producing something. Well, your life is that factory. And what happens in the life of a Christian is that in your life, the enemy, the world, and the flesh bring to us three components that go into that factory. The first is something called momentary. That means a, a thing that is happening to you that can't last forever. Second, It's a light thing. It's only light in comparison with things in eternity, and it is called affliction. That's what's happening. If you're a believer, it either is true or will be true about your life. The Apostle Paul said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What word started that sentence? All. That's us. All of the folks who are true followers of Jesus, they're going to go through momentary light affliction. But because of God's way of working things, He's going to work that momentary light affliction to something. And so we read last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, at the end of that chapter, how that momentary light affliction is producing something. It's producing something that is first through obedience, through faith, love, and go ahead, and hope. It is producing something. So something's happening here. I have these things coming into my life. They're hardships, sorrows, trials, afflictions, persecutions, disappointments, hurts, physical things, emotional things, relational things. And they're painful and they hurt and they feel at the moment that they're super heavy, that they are going to last forever. But the Bible says they're really not all that heavy in comparison with what's being produced. And they're not all that long in comparison with how long eternity is. And yes, they really are affliction, but they are producing three things. Through our faith, hope, love, and obedience, they're producing something eternal. God is leveraging a work against the enemy. So as the enemy comes against you, bringing affliction, 
Because God runs the factory, because God owns the factory, God chooses what the raw materials turn into. He's the one who chooses what is made from the materials of momentary light affliction. He chooses the product in the factory. We don't get to choose the components that come in. In fact, some of you are going through things that you didn't sign up for. I can tell you when I found out on Tuesday that I had cancer, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't say, hey, where's that? Where's the form for this? It just was there. Some of you have suffered far worse things in your life than I'll ever know. In fact, my life has been cushy. I've had a very easy life. And so I know little of affliction, and mine does feel light and momentary. But you may have heavy, 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 heavy things that you are weighted down by today. Well, God is leveraging those to make eternal, next word, weight of glory. In other words, God is leveraging all of the things in your life towards something good. You say, how can he do that? Well, let me say, what is the greatest evil that has ever happened in the universe? What is it? Steve got it right. Who, so, what is it? The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest evil that's ever occurred. No greater evil has ever occurred than when God set foot on the earth, our response to him was, let's kill him. That's the greatest evil that has ever occurred. The murder of the Son of God. What is the greatest event ever in human history for our good? The crucifixion. If God can take the greatest evil that has ever occurred and make it the greatest good, then He's operating the same way in every affliction that happens to you. He's leveraging it for your good and His glory. And so He is producing in the factory of your life an eternal weight of glory. Now, here's what we said we should do with that. We said we needed to do three things. Take me there, Lynn. Number one, how do I navigate it? Well, first, I need to sit down and clearly look at the alternatives. What are the alternatives here? I've got to assess them. What are the alternatives? I can suffer temporarily as a follower of Jesus and have eternal glory, or I can have glory temporarily as a non-follower of Jesus and suffer eternally. Some options. There's not a third option. I can enjoy the glories of God forever in heaven as a follower of Jesus who suffered for His sake, or I can do whatever I want to on this earth within the bounds of God setting limits around my life and have whatever joys and pleasures that I want to get from this life and then suffer eternally. I don't have an in-between choice. And so I need to assess the alternatives. Then I need to do this. I need to use the comparative. I need to say, hmm, temporal suffering, eternal glory versus temporal glory, eternal suffering. little comparative there. What should I do? I think I'll take the temporal suffering with the eternal glory. And so that's where I finally, the third thing is I choose the superlative. Which one's better? Well, the eternal glory. So... I wanted you to leave last week going, what's the big deal with the glory? What is that? 
I wanted you to go away last week and say, what kind of glory is worth the junk that we're putting up with right now? What could be something so big that it makes suffering on this earth seem light and momentary? What is so weighty as to counterbalance the incredible suffering that some believers go through in this life. What could that be? I sat recently with a young lady in my office. She was going through some serious spiritual war. And she verbalized something that not many people are willing to verbalize. She said, I don't know if following God is worth it. I hurt so bad. Now you've got to be hurting a pretty good amount to verbalize that. We're not talking about a, a, a splinter. We're talking about something that is so heavy that the idea of eternal salvation actually no longer feels worth it. And so I thought, I need to make sure that we as a, as a congregation know what those glories are, what that glory is. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, I've broken the glories promised into three categories. These are not complete and exhaustive. They're exemplary from the Scriptures. But I think they're the primary ones that the Bible points out when he says eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So let's jump into Romans 8 and let's work that out. Here we are in Romans 8. Paul uses a word in Romans 8, 18 that he used in the passage last week in 2 Corinthians 4. And the word is compared. Now that word is very important in Paul's doctrine. I'm going to explain that in a second. Let's lead up to it. Look in verse 16 of Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So there is someone in you, if you are saved, if you are the redeemed, if you are born again, He's living there. He's taken up residence. God is living in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is also the Spirit of Jesus, who is also the Spirit of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is residing in us at this moment as believers. And He's testifying to us that we're the children of God. He's identifying us as children, and He's also drawing us to Him as Daddy, to call out to Him in such an affectionate way. In verse 17, he says, and if children, heirs also. So when heirship comes in, not an heirship, but heirship comes in, he's talking about a reward. Now, if you were going to be Bill Gates' heir, what would you think? Pretty good. Bill Gates, loaded. If I'm an heir of Bill Gates, I'm going to get lots of stuff. Okay? You can pick any of the wealthy people in the world and say, if I was their heir, that would be cool. That's why a lot of times when 
One of these very wealthy people dies. All of a sudden, people come out of the woodwork going, yeah, well, I'm their heir. I'm their heir. I'm, you know, somehow related to the family because they want what they own. Well, the Bible says that we're heirs of God. He owns everything. So what are we going to get? Well, if God owns everything, we're going to get everything. The whole universe will be ours. We are heirs of the entirety of what God owns. And he says, fellow heirs also with Christ. So in other words, whatever Jesus is inheriting from his dad, we're inheriting with him as brothers and sisters. And then he says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. The same thing that Jesus gave to Peter about following Jesus and loving Jesus Paul gives to us. If you are an heir, then you are going to suffer in order to receive glory. That's how it's put together. And he says, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. So he's saying that the people who truly are the sons of God, he's putting a condition there, if they are the ones who go on believing even... When things get really hard, when we're terribly disappointed, terribly hurt, terribly harmed, when all of that happens, we continue to believe because that's the mark of His Spirit living in us. And so here He says, if indeed we suffer with Him. So now Paul's going to throw in that word. So let's go into verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now this is... Trade language from Paul's day. How many of you go shopping? Anybody here go shopping? Come on. Do you go shopping? Yeah. You go, everybody goes shopping. We have trade language. Uh, and when we go shopping, things are sold to us in weight or volume. You're going to buy a pound of this or a box of this that has a certain amount in it. Or if you buy produce and vegetables, they're going to sell you by the pound. They're sold to you because that's you have a value for a certain amount of items. So you say that that item is a dollar's worth of weight of that item that I equal out on the scale with a dollar. Back in the day, that's how it worked. You bought everything from someone who had a scale. And that scale served in the marketplace to make sure you were not getting cheated. And so they would set your potatoes on one side, and on the other side they would start adding weights. And the word for when the scale got to even was the word worthy of comparison. It's one word in the New Testament. It was the word worthy of comparison. So when you had a pound of potatoes over here, they'd put a pound worth of weight on there and took. It reached the middle mark and they would say, worthy. That would be the word that was used. So, essentially they were saying, equal. Now, Paul takes that term and he says that the sufferings of this world need to be thought of as something that is laid on one side of a scale. He's using the same concept that he used in 1 Corinthians when he said light, the word light. And then he used the word weight. So if you could think of yourself 
in a marketplace. And you're looking at a scale that has two sides on it, a little balance thing in the middle. And on one side of your scale, the world, the flesh, and the devil are piling on suffering, disappointment, pain, anxiety, sorrow, grief, physical harm, physical illness. They're piling those things on and you feel the weight of them. You feel them when you get up in the morning with groaning in your heart and soul and body. You feel them at midday through the course of your life and the sorrows. You feel them at night as the weight of the world begins to weigh in on you. And they feel so heavy. Paul says, here's the deal. The other side of your scale you can't see. It's in heaven. And every time the world, the flesh, or the devil pound you with the weight of affliction, God walks up in heaven with an object heavier than you have the capacity to to imagine, and he drops it on the other side of the scale. And he says, this is waiting for you in heaven. Hang on in what you're going through. The world comes back and brings another thing and drops it on your scale. And God walks up to your scale in heaven and picks up something heavier than you have the conceivability to ever imagine. And He drops it on the other side and says, storing it up, baby. Storing it up. It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And what He's saying is, is that nothing on this side of that scale on the time side, on the temporal side, can ever even be thought to reach even with what you're going to get in heaven for your endurance in faith, hope, love, and obedience. Nothing. And so Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time that's on this side of the scale, are not worthy to be compared with what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's saying the world is throwing all of this stuff on and God is loading the other side. Glory, glory, glory. So heavy that it can never even be considered worthy of comparison. Never. So in other words, the more that is laid on here, What's happening over there? The more that is being stored up. That's why Paul used the word producing. It is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so what's happening is that God is storing up glory three ways. Let's look at it. Number one, the glory of creation restored. As beautiful as this earth is, it is in every way fallen. 
If you watched the news this morning, you saw the fallenness of humanity last night, where a person with malintent steps into a bar in Orlando and has slaughtered 50 people instantly. 2 a.m. this morning it happened. There's probably more than that. They're not, they don't even have a count yet. Unbelievable. It's horror. This world has fallen in every conceivable way. Look in Romans, it says it. It says in verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Where's that? It's in Genesis. It's in the fall. It's when God pronounces to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you. We brought a curse to this creation through our sin so that the creation is now broken. I was reading an article this week where two ladies were in Australia and one of them decided to take a swim at night. It was a croc-infested water and the croc just got, came up and just got her. That's creation groaning. Creation groaning is when you see a black widow in your house or a snake. Creation groaning is when two cars collide and you hear the crunching of metal and the breaking of bodies. Creation groaning is when a tidal wave sweeps over Banda Aceh, Indonesia, sweeps all the way to India, and 250,000 people are killed in a period of about eight hours. Creation groaning is when an earthquake occurs in Pakistan and 10,000 people die instantly. Creation is groaning. Creation is groaning when you realize that you're not going to live forever and your body's breaking down and it's getting old and it can't do what it could do or used to do. Creation's groaning. And that creation is going to be restored. Notice it says there, it was subjected in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. There's a day when it's going to be restored. In the book of Acts, in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, the Bible talks about the glory of the restoration of all things when God makes all things new. So the first thing that we are hoping for is an unbroken creation. One where black widows don't bite you, and crocodiles don't eat you, and cars don't collide and kill you, and terrorists don't drop in and blow you up and shoot you. And cancer doesn't creep in and kill you. No. We're longing for a creation that is fundamentally different. This week during VBS, we uh, studied five global cities. Uh, there, there are kids here who know... kids. What are the first city that we studied this, this week? Mumbai. What's the second? London. What's the third? Shanghai. What's the fourth? Kuala Lumpur. What's the fifth? Dubai. You see that? They're smart. That is awesome. 
We studied the five global cities that the International Mission Board is focusing on for our long-term outreach to the nations. The last day we studied Dubai, and the Ministry of Tourism in Dubai has put together a 10-minute video for the country of Dubai. And literally, if you watch the video, you will ooh and ah most of the way through the video. Kids, am I right about the ooh and ah? All right. It, it, it will make you ooh and ah. And here's why. In Dubai, they're trying to create paradise because people are longing to break away from this fallen creation. It's inherent in us. We're tired of how this world is working and we want it to be different. And so that longing, that hope is there. And so that is the first of the glories that God is going to do when He makes all things new. In the book of the Revelation, there's a great passage where it says, And I saw Him sitting on the throne from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them, for there was no room for them. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That new heaven and that new earth are the restoration of the glory of creation without reference to sin or the fall or corruption or decay. There's a second way that this glory is going to be experienced by us. We're headed for a new heaven and a new earth, but we're also headed for a new body. The glory of humanity redeemed. Look with me in verse 22 of chapter 8. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. He's kind of picturing things like earthquake and famine sort of as like these pains of childbirth as if the earth is going to give birth to something new. But right now it's in the pain of that process. It says, and not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So the glory of humanity redeemed is a fabulous truth of the Bible. Now, to understand that truth well, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Join me there for a moment. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wishes to save his life in this present world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will gain it eternally or gain life eternal. And so during the ministry of Paul, some folks were having a discussion now, they came from a culture that loved the human body. They worshipped the human body. They worshipped these images of carved, of beautiful figurines, of male and female figures. And they loved the human body and its beauty. And they were a culture that was obsessed with the glory of youthful human bodies. Very much like our culture is today. And so they were thinking of this youthful period of time and how glorious our bodies were, and then how they decayed after that, and then by the time you reached death, that your body just didn't look real good. And the idea of getting that thing back was appalling to them. Like this thing that's laying shriveled up in this, in this tomb, why would we want that thing back? It's pretty nasty looking. 
And so that influence on their thinking caused them to wrestle with the idea of the resurrection. Coupled with the idea that some people were teaching that there was no resurrection, they were really having difficulty. So they wrote to Paul and said, Paul, we don't understand the resurrection and we're kind of disbelieving it right now. Would you help us? So Paul writes back in a very firm tone. So he says, watch the firm tone. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? In other words, they're saying, if you get that thing up out of that stinking grave and walk it around, you really think that's going to be anything? That's just nasty. And so he says to the guy, what kind of body do they get? Paul starts off and says, you fool. (laughs) Is that strong? That's strong. Do you like being called a fool? Do you? No. So Paul's really laying it on saying, well, you don't get it. He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which it is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Stars differ from stars in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What's he saying? Well, give me a slide real quick, Lynn. All right. Do you see this? This is a seed. It's a seed. That's the illustration Paul's using. It's a seed. It's a zinnia seed. Do you all know what zinnias are? Give me a few hands if you know what a zinnia is. Okay, so not totally foreign to us. Zinnias are cool. Zinnia seeds are not. So I want to just tell you something real quick. I don't know what your physical heyday was. I don't know. Mine was college. There was a period of time in college. It was my physical heyday. I lifted weights. When Sherry first met me, she says, you looked like a golf tee. I had a 26-inch waist. I had zero fat hardly on me. And I worked out a lot, and that was my physical heyday. I don't know what was your physical heyday. Some of you are in it, and you're looking mighty good today. You're there. You're right in the middle of it. Some of you hadn't quite got there. You're moving toward it. And some of you, you're like me. We're on the other side of it, okay? But no matter what your physical heyday was, at the very best, it looks like this. Paul's after something. And he does not want you to miss this. Because this is what's being sown in the ground. At your very best, this is all you'll ever be. But when you are raised in Christ, here's what you're going to be. Can you see the difference between the seed and the flower? Can you see it? But what's happening is that Paul is saying, 
Why are you guys trying to hold on to that shriveled up seed? And why would you go on trying to make that seed live forever just like it is? Why don't you trust Jesus and let Him plant you in the soil so He can raise you from the dead? So quit being afraid of dying because you were built to be a seed planted in the ground. And God is going to come one day and He is going to do a supernatural watering of that seed. And you are going to blossom with a glory beyond the comparison we just made. Seed, go ahead to the next slide. Flower, next slide. Now what's going on? Paul's saying, if somehow this life has wowed you, it ought to have wowed you like a seed wows you. And the next life ought to wow you like the little seed packet picture wows you. When you go buy your zinnia seeds and you shake that packet around and you look at that front cover and you look at that seed and you say, this thing's got a long way to go to get anywhere. So do you. And what God is saying is that you need to stop laboring to keep what you can't keep. Let your seed fall into the hand of Jesus, the heavenly planter, who is going to, at His appointed time, plant you in this earth at the day of your death and harvest you on the day of the resurrection to a glory that we can't even conceive the comparison. What's after this? Well, let's go to it. The glory of God revealed. When the Bible speaks of these glories in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it's leading us all towards something that we find in the book of John chapter 17. So let's go there for a moment. We're going to camp there for a second, rejoice in it, and then talk about how to take this home. John 17. It's very important for you to understand that these first two have no meaning apart from the third. I'm going to say something very explicit. I want you to take it as explicitly as I say it. If the first two are your primary reason for having come to Jesus, it's very possible you're not a Christian. If the first two are your primary, follow me, didn't say secondary, tertiary, primary reason for coming. It's possible you're not a Christian. Because these two have no value apart from the third one. If you would be okay with a heaven where you had a healthy body and a nice place, but you didn't care if God was there, that's not heaven. The entirety of your body was made for one purpose. To know and enjoy God. That's why it exists. Every sense that you have, the ability to see color, was God speaking to you about how gloriously colorful He is. All those taste buds that love chocolate and ice cream and pizza and all those other things you like, every one of those taste buds says to you, God tastes better than all of this. Hunger 
was made to make you know that you're dependent upon something outside of you to nourish you. That's why Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Thirst was given to you in your human body for the purpose of knowing that you need a living water to come into you. All of your body exists to know and enjoy God and through that to give Him glory. That's why you have a body. All of creation exists to declare God's glory to us so that in our body we could understand who He was and what He is like. And so our body in relation to the creation has no association that is meaningful apart from the Creator. And so this last one is the reason all this other has any weight and what makes them eternally weighty in their glory. And that is the glory of God revealed. Look in John 17. This is a fantastic passage. It's Jesus' last prayer that we have recorded on the earth other than uh, the things that He says crying out from the cross uh, as He calls upon His Father. And so here He is praying and Then he gets to the end of the prayer, and here's what he says in verse 22. And the glory which thou hast given me, I've given to them. So they are co-inheritors of this glory. If we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him, Romans 8 says. That they may be one just as we are, and I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me, and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father... I desire, now here's Jesus using a strong word, desire. Father, I desire that they also, whom Thou hast given me, be with me where I am in order that they may do one thing. What is it? What is it? Behold my glory. This is the end to which everything is working. Your new body and your new heaven and earth will have one purpose that you will have the proper perception and the right environment in which to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And all of history will be culminated in that moment and all of the joys you've ever wanted in your life will be fulfilled eternally. Everything is heading to this. That's why the last book of the Bible is not called Revelations. It is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of history is moving to this one day. Where one day, because of Him who died for you, because you believed in faith that He first loved you and you loved Him in return for His life for you, His death in your behalf, His resurrection of glory. You loved Him. And you have held on to that love through thick and thin. You've held on to it in sickness. You've held on to it in trouble, in hardship, in disappointment. You've held on to it. Because one day, He's going to give you the body that can perceive Him fully, the the environment that can enjoy Him the best, And then He's going to show up and it says, we shall behold His face. (laughs) This is the purpose for which everything exists. And this is where God wants to take you. And He's going to take you there through the factory of suffering. And He's going to use every heart and every disappointment, and every pain, and every fear, and every anxiety, and every sorrow, and every tear that falls on this side of your scale. 
And He is going to multiply it so many times that it cannot be compared. And then you're going to show up and He's going to give you that beautiful zinnia body. Alright guys, hang with me here. And He's going to plant you in a place where the tigers come up and lick you like your cat. And you're going to behold Jesus. And everything will make sense then. Right then. Everything will make sense. And so the thing I want to invite you to is Jesus. Would you bow with me? He loves you. He first loved you. He has lived for you. He has died for you. He has been raised for you. He lives to intercede for you. And He wants to call you by name as a sheep. And you can live out that beautiful voice. In, I mean, a beautiful verse in John 10 where it says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. This Jesus wants to call you to Himself. Would you hear Him? Would you follow today? That's it. Follow Him. This week I taught the children four things that they can tell you right now. Children, are y'all ready if I give the four words? Are y'all ready? Okay. Here's the, here's the word. Creator. Sin. Jesus, me, creator good. God is the good creator who made you. And he does nothing but good. And he is worthy of your worship. But you sinned and you are worthy of death. And sin brings death. And if you follow sin, that's all it produces is death. But Jesus is life. He brought life. He imparts life. And He gave His life. And so if you follow Jesus, you get life back to the good Creator and your sin is put away and forgiven and you live forevermore. And so here's the word, the last word. Children, say it again. Me? Follow. That's what I need to do. So what about you? Are you Jesus' sheep? Will you hear His voice today? And will you follow Him? He's going to walk you right into a restored creation, a redeemed body, and the revelation of God in Himself that you will behold and see Him. Would you stand? Would you come?